Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. My guest is Anne Maloney. She is the recipes editor at the Washington Post, and she is kind of a new transplant to Washington, D.C., and she used to live in New Orleans. Welcome, Anne. It's really nice to talk to you. Thank you. It's great to be here and then to be talking with you again. I've missed you since I've been away. Oh, I've missed you too. So one of the things I want to let everyone know is that we're talking on April 16th, 2020. We're sort of in the middle of all of this social isolation caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. And you're the perfect person to talk to because you are the recipes editor at the Washington Post. I want to talk to you about the fact that people are cooking at home now that so many restaurants are closed and only takeout is available. All of those things that I think culturally were habits that people had begun to have, which was to eat out more both at noon and at at night, cooking has kind of taken that place because that's the only option we have. We still need to eat. It's been a fascinating thing to watch. I mean, I started, uh, you know, I was um, I was a food and dining writer for the Times Picayune um, for several years before I moved to D.C. Um, and definitely, the emphasis in New Orleans was on dining out. I mean, we did we did cook a lot, and people in South Louisiana do cook a lot. And in the South, but in my job, I found the emphasis was very much on restaurants. Then I moved here and in D.C. And again, restaurants were huge, but um, and and so was cooking. But I find that you know because of what has happened, people cannot go to their favorite restaurants. They cannot get together the way that they used to with their friends at restaurants for drinks and so forth. And so home cooking has become not only a way to feed yourself. But I think it's become sort of a hobby or um, a thing that people are doing to pass time. It's a creative outlet. And just from, you know, hearing from readers who read the Washington Post, this is really taken off. I mean, it, it, in a way that, that surprised me. Uh, I, people are asking us really specific in-depth questions about how to prepare certain kinds of food. Our chats that we do weekly at noon at the Washington Post, the questions are, are, are much more specific about getting dinner on the table. And people are also asking us how to deal with cooking three meals a day, seven days a week. It's something people just really were not doing. And many people are doing that now. I mean, I think about myself. I did not cook three meals a day, seven days a week where this happened and I'm I cook for a living you know <laughs> but I a lot of people are really trying to do that and they're trying to to do what's right and and maintain the social distancing and that's requiring them to to cook at home and they're trying to find a way to make it fun and make it interesting and not make it feel like drudgery and it's just been it's been fascinating to see sort of the, just the attention to detail and the the amount of work that people are putting into this in their own lives. Well, don't you think that perhaps not having competing 
obligations. It's making it a little bit easier for people to focus on it as something good to accomplish as opposed to just, oh, I've got to throw together meals after I come home from work and I have three really hungry kids who are ready to eat. And you don't have that quite that same kind of pressure. That's interesting, too, because it, 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 it just like in life, everyone's experience is different. You know, everyone says we're all in the same boat. And I, I said this to somebody recently. We're all in the same boat, but each of our boats is is actually quite different <laughs> because <laughs> there are some people who have less time because they are home with their kids 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Maybe they send them, you know, maybe they take them to the park and run them around a little bit. But they're, they were once, they had after-school activities. They had other things that their kids were doing. They had play dates. They had things like that. And I've talked to parents of young children who tell me they feel like they have fewer hours to spend in the kitchen, less time than they did before. And then there are people like me. I don't have kids. It's just me and my husband. So, yeah, if I, when I finish work, I'm lucky to be able to work remotely. When I finish work, I can spend the whole evening. You know, the other night I made a tart that took four hours, an onion tart. I can spend four hours doing that because I do have that free time. Mm-hmm. So so I think there, it just depends on your life. And um, it also depends on your income. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot of people who don't have the money to play around with food. They have, they, they have a budget, especially now if maybe their hours have been cut or they're not working at all. And so they're struggling to feed themselves with a, a lot less money than they once had. So you go from that, that you might have kids and not, not as much money as you used to have. And you're taking care of your kids and you're homeschooling them and you're, you're trying to work and you're trying to get food on the table to the other extreme where people are maybe have money, aren't working and have all the time in the world <laughs> to play in the kitchen. And so we, we get questions across the spectrum on that. And it's just like when anything happens, you know, especially something that touches this broad swath of people, it's different for everybody and and what they need. And we're trying to, you know, food writers across the country are trying to help each of these each of these kinds of people or buckets of people, if you want to put it that way, navigate this. And it's been uh, it's eye opening as far as the socioeconomic condition in our country, the access to food that people have, the ease of getting it, physically actually getting to it and getting it home. It, it's, it's, it's really been eye-opening. And at the Post, I have like a, you know, I can see the whole, uh, I'm, I'm working with the whole country, right? just one city. I'm hearing from people from all over uh, the country and, and their specific needs and experiences are, are very different. You know, I, so, can, I do think there are a lot of people who are just really enjoying being able to dig in and learn and, and cook. So do you think that there's going to be a long-term cultural change, or do you think that this is an anomaly and, you know, th- there was also a lot of home cooking for monetary reasons after the financial crash in 2008? There was a big rise in home cooking, and restaurants really felt the the hit of not having people going out to eat because people were trying to save money. But then as soon as people started to feel comfortable again financially, they started to go back to restaurants. And I think we have seen that cultural shift to people eating out 
much more than, say, in the 1950s or something like that, where eating out was something you did as a special occasion as opposed to something you did every day. Do you think that this is going to have a long-term effect, or do you think that this is something that's going to be more or less over at the time that we finally, say, return to normal, assuming we do? Well, I think one of the things I'm very concerned about is the impact that this is going to have on restaurants, mm-hmm. especially smaller restaurants that are owned by families, you know, a chef or a cook who has one restaurant, their ability to weather this mm-hmm. and then reopen. Mm-hmm. Um, those are those are usually the people who are serving neighborhoods, who are serving food that is affordable. That that's the place where you go get your po' boy, or you run in and you pick up sandwiches, or you stop in with your family on a on a Wednesday night because you don't feel like cooking. Those I'm very concerned about whether those those restaurants are going to be able to weather this and reopen and be there for it. Will they eventually reopen or be replaced by other restaurants years down the line? Probably. But in the, the immediate aftermath of this, I'm very concerned about that. The economic impact of that, the impact on culture, you know, the, the role that restaurants play in our daily lives in our neighborhoods is huge, especially in New Orleans, but in D.C. as well. I mean, I see it here and I've lived in other places and, and it's, it's huge. It's the place where we get together. It's a place where we try new things. And it's also an employer and that concerns me a great deal. So I, I, my, my, you know, I'm, I'm not an economist or any, have any background in, in this kind of research, but in my mind, that looks, everything I've read, that looks like a real danger that, that may be an issue. I do hope a, a tiny silver lining of this may be that people are learning that they can cook for themselves pretty easily, that it's really not, um, difficult to do and that it can be enjoyable and you can make delicious things that you, uh, you know, can enjoy together, that you can cook with your kids, that you can teach your kids to cook, that you really can all sit around the table again and eat together. I mean, just the fact that people are doing Zoom cocktail hours and Zoom dinners with their friends and family tells you that we're going to find a way to eat together. I mean, we like to eat together. It's something we like to do as people. We enjoy it. And I think people figuring out how to do it in this very bizarre way. You know, we have a Zoom Easter. I've heard people have Zoom Passovers. So I'm hoping that, you know, maybe a little bit of a silver lining of this will be that people will up their skills a little bit, get more comfortable with substitutions in food and experimenting with spices and knowing that a recipe is a guideline for the most part. You know, there are some that are not. Like if you're baking a cake, you need to follow the directions. But in a lot of cases, you know, if you don't have cumin, you can sub in a different spice for that. You don't have angel hair pasta, it's fine to use another kind of pasta. Um, you don't have peas, look in the freezer and see if you have some other frozen vegetables. Right. Relax a little bit of the kitchen and enjoy it. And I think people are starting to to understand that and realize it, especially if it saves you another trip to the grocery store. Especially right now. You don't want to go unnecessarily to the grocery store just for Absolutely. You really don't. You've got to. And then sometimes that means eating what you have and not what you're craving. And that's not something we're used to either. Many of us (laughs) like to eat what we want when we want it. And so we're having to, you know, we're having to say, oh, well, I'm craving this, but instead I'm going to have this tonight. 
So the other thing I'm worried about, not only the aftermath and what its impact will be on restaurants, especially mom and pop restaurants, I'm also worried about small farms. I think that because restaurants are not ordering as much directly from farms and those farms that specialized in restaurant produce and restaurant production as opposed to retail aren't prepared to package for retail. They don't have distribution channels for retail. And those farms and dairies and things like that are are throwing things away because they don't have a way to get it to market. And even if they were selling at farmer's markets, so many of those have closed that even that channel is, is closed for them. It's also a worry, not only the, the restaurants, but I think the farms, small farms. I mean, some of them are, are, are working to sell directly to customers. You know, they're doing no-touch deliveries and letting people drive through and pick up produce and, and things like that. Some um, are, are, you know, trying to wait it out. But the impact on small farms is the same as the impact on small businesses throughout the country. Right. And, you know, that, that you could, abs- I mean, restaurants and farms operate on very slim margins. So, you you know, there's just not, they don't, they don't have a, a big pile of money that they can say, well, we'll just, you know, we'll just sit back for six months and see what happens. Well, so I, I'm, I'm very concerned about that as well. And if you have there to continue been- to feed your animals, Exactly. You know, milk your cows, do all those things, and then not have a, a an outlet for the milk. Uh, you know, that's just that's horrifying to think of. It is. It is. That's a, that's a huge worry. Uh, one little t- again, another tiny little silver lining is that some of the farms in the 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 District of Columbia area actually saw a little bit of uptick because people were having some trouble getting some things at the grocery. Things were sold out. They were, you know, they were the groceries. You know, the groceries are getting, um, for the most part, what they need to fill their shelves. It's just that sometimes, like if you go on a Tuesday and you only want to go once a week, they don't happen to have what you need at that time. And so some of the farmers have said they've actually seen a little uptick in people trying to find things and contacting them directly. And they're doing, you know, and some have started to do the CSA boxes and things like that. But that's a really, I mean, that's not like having your clients that were buying your crop. No, no. Specialty shops and restaurants and so forth. This is just not going to, that's not going to replace that. This is a, that's a very serious, um, very serious problem. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm as concerned about them as I am about every, every small business that services yeah restaurants farms and other small businesses that provide services for people who aren't who aren't using them right now so let's talk for a minute about the comparison between the situation we have now and the one that you and i experienced post hurricane katrina in 2005 i remember the book that was produced by the times picayune cooking up a storm because so many people had lost their recipe collections and they were dispersed in this kind of diaspora around the country and not able to eat the food of home. Um, what, you know, in, in those days, I think that as the restaurants reopened um, and opened their restaurants even before they f- fixed their own homes and things, 
um, people were flocking to the restaurants because, first of all, everyone was eating their food, which if they'd been in Minneapolis or even in Memphis, they weren't getting. And so they were feeling very, very alone and away. And this was a way for everybody to be experiencing things together. Um, And restaurants actually were a very, very important factor in, I think, restoring the the sense of New Orleans again after Hurricane Katrina. How do you see the difference between what's going on now and home cooking and that kind of experience where you also had all these restaurants shut down, not not for the same reason, and often the restaurants were damaged. How do you compare these two situations? Well, I can tell you emotionally and psychically there, there are a lot of comparisons. You know, that feeling of, of having your whole world upended by something that you have no control over is, you know, I didn't expect to have that feeling again ever in my life. And it's a lot to manage while you're going on with your life, just as it was then. It's a lot to manage emotionally and psychically as you're working and you're cooking and you're taking care of family and doing whatever you're doing. You have this huge thing that you're also dealing with. So that's been, um, I'm sure a lot of people who've been through other traumas like that have those same sorts of um, uh, comparisons in their mind. It took me a minute to sort of recognize, like it was familiar feelings, and I was like, what's this feeling? Oh, yeah, it's that feeling I had during Katrina. Yeah. So that, that is part of, the, uh, with everything else you're dealing with, financially, you know, social issues, family issues, health issues, you have this sort of overwhelming sense that the world has just turned upside down and there's nothing you can do about it. You have to live with what's happening. Um, I think that many times that, that, that once this is over, the restaurants that can reopen will be, people will be thrilled to be in them again, just as they were before. I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like, you know, at Mandina's, for example, once this is over, what will the crowd be like? How will people be behaving? What will they be doing? RNOs, places like that, that people that were as much a part of their lives as any other ritual. You know, I have friends who go to college in once a week at a certain time on a certain day, and they have friends who meet them there, and that's part of their life. It's part of their ritual. It's what they do. Now those people are, um, they walk, they're having a social distancing cocktail hour where they stand at the top of their stairs and their friends stand at the bottom of the stairs and they meet that same time, that same day, but it's not the same. So when those restaurants reopen, I think they'll, once again, the ones that can survive, that can weather this, they will see, they will be as much a part of the the nation's recovery from this as, as they were after Katrina. They will be touchstones for people. This is, oh, look, it's normal again. I can do this now. I can do that now. I, I really believe that. I know I feel that way. Uh, there are things that, you know, that I really want. I'll tell you one thing I miss a lot living in D.C. It's having access to fresh shrimp. Oh, like, gosh, yes. I just really want, you know, I want the ease at access to fresh shrimp. How much shrimp did I eat before this? A lot. I ate a lot <laughs> of shrimp, and I can't get them. And so... Uh, I can get them, but you know I can get I I can't always get them, and they're frozen. And da, 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 you know, and that's a small problem, I know. But it's a thing that I I miss in my life, and that I will embrace again when I when I have a chance to. 
And I think as far as home cooking goes, a lot of the things that people want now are things that are comforting, things that make you feel um, – food can feel like a hug. You know, we find that people are, are really interested in pastas right now, for example. Um, and um, the interest in that has been tremendous. But they're also interested in – learning more about things that they maybe hadn't embraced before. One of the things we're seeing people talk a lot about is beans because they're inexpensive. They, they have a long shelf life and my gosh, are they versatile? I mean, you can do all sorts of things with them. So we see, we've gotten a lot of queries on um, dry bean recipes, canned bean recipes. Um, people are really interested in that. And the other thing I've seen people, a little bit of a trend in is canned fish. Canned salmon, canned tuna, that sort of thing. Oh, wow. It's that like seems like, like the depression you know, almost. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, exactly. But if you, you know, like I was, I was, I, I love canned tuna. So I had a big stack of it in my pantry and um, I was talking on a chat with a reader and they're like, I buy it by the case now. And so, you know, there's maybe people are experimenting. This is all anecdotal, of course, but maybe people are experimenting a little bit more with some things that are a little more basic and thrifty and long lasting. Will they do that once this is over and the economy, you know, fingers crossed, rebounds? Who knows? You know, I mean, I think people do what they have to do out of necessity. Right. And I don't think people would prefer to have canned tuna over, you know, most people over a delicious, fresh, seared tuna steak. Mm-hmm. But um, but I, I do think that that there's a resilience in people that we see that we see, and um, and maybe they're learning skills that they that they will continue to take with them going forward. I mean, I know I've 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 been baking bread, something I never did before, and now I feel so much more comfortable doing it. I actually bake bread. And eat it, like slice it and make sandwiches <laughs> of it. That was something I never did before. I never did that. So that's just one little example. But I'm hearing that from other readers as well. That they just feel more comfortable, and they love the variety of things that they're able to make. Um, and this whole thing of, you know, of, of food substitutions is really fascinating to me because um, so often readers. That's what they want. They'll, you know, you, you post a recipe and they, they send you an email or they put a message under saying, I don't have this, I don't have that, what can I do? And that's a skill that you learn when you cook. You know, right. if you cook a lot, you learn it. You just, you just, oh, you look in your cabinet, oh, I don't have that, I'm going to do this instead. And so that's a skill a lot of people are picking up. So they'll have the skills. Will they, will they then, you know, go back to eating out every Thursday night? Probably, if they can afford it and their favorite restaurant reopens, and they should. I mean, I think that would be, I think, I hope they do, because that's part of our economy. Yeah, oh, yeah, but but that means that perhaps their other meals will be peppered with a little bit more creativity because of their experience. So that's also possible. Yeah, that can't be true. I mean, I just, I know it's happening to me. I'm getting feedback from readers that it's happening to them. Um, I, I just, I think that, you know, generally across the board, I think that's got to be true. Um, just like having a, a parent and a grandparent that grew up during the depression, that had an impact on the way I learned to cook, you know, oh, um, yeah. the, the, the thrifty things that they taught me as a child. Um, so I can't imagine that this won't have an impact on 
people just as that did. I mean, we used to make codfish cakes with, with you take fish flakes and mashed potatoes and you make them into little patties and fry them up and that was dinner. Mm-hmm. And the reason we did that is we didn't have a lot of money and we had a big family. So, you know, I still I still make things like that that maybe I would never have made in my life if my parents and grandparents hadn't been through that. That, that experience. experience. Well, my mother always made what she called whipped cream out of evaporated milk, canned evaporated milk. And that's what I thought whipped cream was for a long time. <laughs> because that's what they had done during the war when cream was something that was not really available. And um, so it whips up just like cream. And so that's what I thought it was. It's really interesting what you uh, grow up with and how that influences you and how sometimes it's useful at a later date. We all learn all of those things. I know. It's crazy. And it really is. And I, I, and it's really been fun to to write about um, my colleague, Becky Crystal, that has done a lot of these. Um, how-to stories and essential recipe stories to help people navigate this. You know, we just did something on making yogurt at home. There's so many little skills that you could master, things that you think are difficult that really aren't. Baking, you know, baking a loaf of sandwich bread is not hard. Mm-hmm. It's not difficult. If I can bake it, anyone can bake it. Mm-hmm. I'm not a baker. Mm-hmm. Making yogurt is easy. It's very simple and easy. There's lots of little things you can learn like that. And that can save you money, and it can save um, trips to the grocery and, and that sort of thing. We've been writing a lot about that, um, this sort of basic skill sets. I, I, I can imagine. I've really started doing all kinds of crazy things at home. Make, I have vinegar starts all over the place. I'm making vinegar now. And uh, so I have white wine vinegar, red wine vinegar. I have malt vinegar. I have champagne vinegar. And I've decided I have an old bottle of sake that I someone gave me ages ago, and I think I'm going to turn that into vinegar. Um, so I I understand. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of crazy. Well, I'm making a lot of salad. I'm putting it in greens. Um, I'm doing all that kind of stuff. I mean, I've gotten very obsessive about. Okay, I'm buying beets. They have tops. I clean up those tops and I saute them and eat the greens with pasta. You know, I have this Sicilian background. So eating uh, greens and pasta is a, is something that people did, you know? And so I've always got greens, sauteed greens in the refrigerator. I'll make a sandwich out of them and like put sliced tomatoes on with greens and make a sandwich and just all that kind of stuff. And and I, I'm trying very hard not to throw anything away. One of the things that we've been working on, too, just before any of this happened, is, you know, to, to make the kitchen, at, at, our kitchens at home and the one at the post uh, um, as waste-free as possible. Mm-hmm. And we just did a salad uh, story, um, Ali Slagle wrote, food writer, uh, about um Using the whole herb in salads, you know, the stems and everything. Mm-hmm. And the, sal- the salad we made was absolutely delicious. It was just like eating a bowl of springtime, you know, yeah. and the, the stems are kind of crunchy. And I just thought of all those parsley stems and dill stems and things that I've thrown away 
um, over the years. I, I don't think I'll ever do it again. And so, you know, those are the kind of little things that might that might stay with me. Yeah. Baking, yogurt baking, uh, eating eating as much of the piece of food as I possibly can. The celery leaves, like you said, the tops. So one thing I want to ask you uh, before we sort of wrap up is this thing I've seen all over the internet where people are going crazy, not making things like bread, but making cupcakes and cookies and cakes and pies and just going really, really baking nuts. And I'm not a baker because I don't like to measure. That's why I can bake bread, but I don't want to measure to make cake or whatever. I want to, you know, just throw some stuff together. So I don't understand it, but are you observing it? I'm observing it, and I'm even doing it too. You know, I, 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 I'm like you. I, 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 like I love to tinker when I cook. So like I like a pot of something that I can add a little to and taste. And it's why instant pots are really not. I use them. I and I love to use them for certain things, mm-hmm. but they frustrate me because you seal it up and it's done and you can't touch it. Yeah. And I, I want to get in there and taste it and and play with it. So. Um, and I feel that way about baking too. The recipes are, are you know, it's all it's by weight and not volume. And there's so many, um, it's so precise. And so I, I often feel like I'm a little hemmed in by them. I, you know? I do too. It's fussy, you know. Yeah. But I have to say, you know, the reward of home baked goods is so great that once you sort of dive into it again, it's just. You know, it's pretty fabulous to make, uh, you know, make uh, one of our writers has made a carrot cake um, muffin that is just absolutely delicious and not too fussy. You know, not uh-huh. too, uh, not, you know, not, it doesn't, this is not going to, this is a beginner recipe. Yeah. Um, you know, not too t- terribly difficult. But we are getting tons of questions about that. We had like, we had a chat this week and we probably had six or seven questions regarding yeast. And all the different kinds of yeast and active yeast and dry yeast and wine yeast and what you could use it for and how old you could be. And I mean, people are getting into the nitty gritty of that and learning, um, learning again to make substitutes when they don't have what they, what they what need. They we mean. even started talking about growing, you know, wild yeast and how people do it. And that's where I sort of, my eyes sort of glazed over and I have to dig in a little more on that one. <laughs> um, but absolutely, you know, this, this, I mean, there was such an uptick in it that we had grocery stores that were out of flour and, and out of yeast. Um, the one in my neighborhood, for example, every time I go in, there's no all-purpose flour. Absolutely none. It must be gone as soon as they put it down. Oh, wow. So people are definitely into um, into baking. And, and bread has been huge. Yeah. I mean, sourdough bread has had you know, a rebirth, um, talk about something that's a little fussy. Yeah. That's a, that's a very comp. I shouldn't say it's very complicated, but it, it's, it requires very specific skills and it requires you to be dedicated to keeping your starter alive yeah. and learning the process of making it. But that has been just gone bonkers. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Everyone is making sourdough bread and everyone is writing about everybody making sourdough bread. So right. It's been really huge. And, um, but I also think people like to bake because it smells good and it's comforting. Sure. And, you know, who doesn't want to bite into a warm cookie or, you know, ice cupcakes with their kids and, and watch them eat them and enjoy them or, you know, make a delicious tart, uh, you know, that everybody can have after a slice of after dinner. 
it's it's a it's a way to show people affection and it's a way to sort of comfort yourself with you know flour and sugar and butter and chocolate and all the things we love mm-hmm. so um but uh, but uh, you know I am like I, I'm I think it's okay to make simple things and not don't stress yourself out you know right like don't feel like you have to become a master baker you can just make simple things that you enjoy right that's what I've been doing right so, Anne, I want to thank you so much for your time um, today, and it's been really fun to have a chance to talk to you again. Well, it's lovely talking to you, too. It's good to hear your voice, and uh, I miss New Orleans. I miss all of you, and uh, I hope to be able to get back there soon. I hope so, too. Thanks for joining me today, listening to Tip of the Tongue. We are part of the Nitty Grits Network of the National Food and Beverage Foundation, with other great podcasts like The Sustainable Table, hosted by Brent Rosen. Come visit us at our studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. You can find us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.